because people keep saying, oh, they're, they're eventually it's going to be a majority-minority country. We're in a majority-minority state. And what are the changes in terms of power that people of color have here? So it's not something that we need to rest on our laurels and say, oh, we've achieved this, so let's just sit back, because it is an ongoing process. Welcome to the BCS Race Talk podcast. We have with us uh, right now Rebecca Hankins, and uh, I want to read a couple of your credentials here because I want to read some highlights of, of some of the things that, uh, that you've accomplished here so far. So you are an associate professor, uh, you are an archivist, a librarian, and curator, uh, and you're also an affiliate faculty member in the new Interdisciplinary Critical Studies Department with an emphasis on African studies, women's and gender studies, and religious studies. Yes. And you also uh, received your bachelor's from Eastern Michigan University and then a master's of library and information sciences from Louisiana State University. Yes. Uh, And you've been uh, at Texas A&M University since 2003, uh, and you received tenure in 2010. Yes. All right. And that's that's your entire life. I'm sure that's not your entire life. I'm sure there's way more interesting yeah. stuff that you need to tell us. But um, yes, do uh, please tell us. Um, let's go ahead and get started with uh, a little bit about where where you grew up, because you're not a native Texan like no, me. No, uh, I was born uh, in a small town, Pontiac, Michigan, and it's about 20 minutes from Detroit, Michigan. It's a little sleepy bedroom suburbs is what we used to call them. And I moved to Detroit um, when I was in grade school. And uh, we moved into a house in, uh, um, it was an all-white neighborhood when I went to the fifth grade. And so that, that's where I grew up in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you were um, one of the few, you said the few or the only black family in the neighborhood? We were the only black family for about, I'd say, about two or three miles. There was one other black family that was about two miles away, um, and and their one son, who became a really good friend of mine, was also, he was the only black in our class. And so in, in Detroit, they had two sections. You were 5A, 5B. When I started, I was in 5B. And he was the only other black student in a different uh, fifth grade. And then when, when he, we um, got to the sixth grade, he and I were in class together. So my first year and a half, uh, we were the only two black people. Okay. Uh, and I was, we were the only black family in our neighborhood. Yeah, explain to me how that was like growing up that way. Was it, uh, was, was, was race a thing you were conscious of as a child when you were growing up in that area? Interesting. Not really, and not until I, we moved into uh, this neighborhood did I really consciously think about black and white issues because my mom was always um, friends with uh, interracial couples. She was in an interracial relationship for 
about 20-something years. And so it was not until I moved into that neighborhood, we moved into that neighborhood, did race come to the forefront. And it came to the forefront the first day we moved into that neighborhood when our um, one of our neighbors who lived across the street called the police when we the day we were moving in the evening really we were finishing up and uh, we the police came and told us that our car was blocking our neighbor and it, it just and they also cautioned us quote cautioned us uh, that we were moving into an all-white neighborhood and that there could possibly be um, some issues with that. And rather than the neighbor coming across the street to let us know that our car was blocking her driveway, um, they called the police. So that was my first introduction to issues of that. The race was going to be a problem. <laughs> I see. And you were very young at this point. Yes. Yes. But my mom, as I said, she was always uh, um, involved in interracial uh, friendships. We always had friends who were different races, different, uh, you know, even uh, my, my when I was in Pontiac, um, when I grew up, one of my good friends was a transgendered male. I mean, they didn't say use that term back then, but we were always friends with a, a number of people, black, white, Hispanic, Asian. I mean, we, we just had a wide circle. And it could have been because we were in the union. My mom was uh, uh, worked for the union, uh, the auto uh, Union UAW and my dad worked for uh, the automobile industry and so they both were engaged in very um, diverse you know relationships friendships so it just never occurred to me that my race and it may have been my na naivete I was like I said in the fifth grade uh -huh. but um there were a number of incidents that occurred when I was when I was in school, with teachers, with students. I didn't have any friends, so yeah, race. <laughs> so so interestingly, when you were growing up, it wasn't necessarily an issue until you said you moved into this particular suburb. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Yes. Okay, now and so you you went from there uh, to university at Eastern Michigan, mm -hmm. and then you went to Louisiana. Yes. Um, how did you uh, end up coming to Texas, Texas A and um, So I was living in Louisiana for over twenty years, and that's when I decided after I worked for the Amistad Research Center at Tulane University, which is probably the leading. Uh, institution that that um, houses resources on African Americans and archives it's a research center, and so I went back to school, finished up my undergrad degree uh, there at Loyola University, and then uh, went to LSU, who's in the state of Louisiana, and so after I had finished, 
I moved to the University of Arizona. And from the University of Arizona, I was in this um, internship, sort of like a postgraduate program. And um, then I came, I was looking for a position that was research one that offered me opportunities to really work with Africana. It was a position that was dealing with African American studies and Africana and Texas A&M offered also an opportunity for librarians to receive tenure and go through research, do research and travel. And so that's what I was looking for, this very diverse experience, this opportunity to really do the kinds of research on subjects that I was very interested in, Africana studies, women and gender studies, and so did you, uh, were you an Africana Studies major as an undergrad? Is that what you studied? Strange enough, no, I wasn't. Uh, most of my, my um, work in, in undergrad was in women and gender studies. As a matter of fact, my minor was in women and gender studies. And so being at Amistad, which is the premier institution dealing with uh, Africana Studies, I mean, you really minority communities across the board, that was an education in itself. By the time I left there, I knew so much about black history because I did all history transcriptions. I did all kinds of different things there. And I, and I was really, at, by the time I left, after 12 and a half years there, I was the senior archivist. I knew all about the collections there, and even to this day, people still contact me about some of those collections. Um, and so that was a real on-the-job education. And so I already had a lot of um, knowledge about these subjects when I came here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even at the University of Arizona, I was doing similar things, although I was working with... Um, senatorial papers and con- congressional papers, just looking at it. And I worked with this collection uh, on this really very famous botanist who had traveled all over Africa. And just going through that collection, you just really start seeing these connections between communities, these synergies that were not just in the liberal arts, but also in the sciences, and that there is an opportunity for us to learn more about the contributions of of people of color to all of these areas that oftentimes we don't think that, you know, that these people are part of this this knowledge. So when when I think of, of African American History Month, for instance, or anything that deals with African American studies, a lot of it is is focused on the African American component of it, right, mm-hmm. and not necessarily their contributions to what we consider non-racial um, specific uh, right. disciplines, right? So, <clears throat> you know, science, for in- instance, mm-hmm. or or you know, literature. If it's literature, right, yeah. then it's you know, African American literature right. or something along those lines. It's mm-hmm. interesting because I just realized that that's. That's that's a thing. That's a sort of a binary that we tend to have, where Absolutely. you have you know everything that is a just a, a generic academic space, and then you have specifically something like women's studies right. or gender studies or something right. along those lines. Yeah, and I was just talking to someone about this, and 
most of my career has been about how do we diversify the academic space in ways that people are not used to because they don't know. That's been a real goal of mine to show that there that there were um, people of color who were talking about race in the 17th century. Uh, one of my colleagues showed me uh, there was a group of African-American activists who were in contact with Guyana in the 1800s about how can we move there if this if your society is a place where blacks have you know achieved their freedom how can we move there and be a part of that and so it's it's been one of my you know really important goals is to show that people of color and african americans have been engaged and so much of our knowledge that we are not providing access to that type of information. And it's really leaving out a, a wide swath of, of knowledge that could be a benefit to, to individuals. I mean, the mathematicians that have been uh, African Americans, oftentimes we we don't know anything about those. The scientists, you know, there were more scientists than George Washington Carver <laughs> while <laughs> they're doing agricultural and we're looking at uh, health. And, well, now, and, now the people that are, have been popularized as the, 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 the black scientists are, are those women um, in, yes. the, in the Hidden Figures film, right? Yes. Um, the names escape me embarrassingly, but uh, but but yes, but that absolutely. that's just one of the. That's actually probably the only I think a popular culture example that I can think of of <clears throat> this 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 normalizing of this history, right? right. Um, and so, right. is would it be accurate to say that 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 part of your what you are interested in doing in your professional and research life is to dispel this notion that any scientific historical literary history is largely something that is is male or white and right. to be clear i mean there have certainly been a lot of people who mm -hmm. have been white males who have contributed but right. there is this um, assumption that because society was the way it was back then that those right. were the only people that contributed exactly um and so it is you know this this hegemony that Western culture, everything came from Western culture, is something that I've worked hard to to dispel. And it's not, as I've written before, it's not to not acknowledge that work because uh, there, there, I mean, they, there have been amazing contributions, but there have been amazing contributions from, you know, a wide range of individuals who we don't know about so those hidden histories similar to um, the those those NASA engineers who we are now learning about that's that's all throughout academia and all throughout you know our knowledge base needs to be expanded to include all of these different you, individuals. You used a very academic word uh, about a minute ago, hegemonic. Mm -hmm. So for those of us who are not so academically inclined, <laughs> uh, could you explain to us what, what, what hegemony or hegemonic, what that refers to? Uh, well, it refers to a knowledge base 
that it seemed to come from only one place and that all of our higher learning, all of our educational um, stars come from this particular frame of Western society when that's not the case, (laughs) that we are trying to expand that understanding that there are all of these other societies that have contributed. So it doesn't just all come from this one group of of, uh, individuals who we see as being only a you know part of the, the the canon of knowledge the the depth and breadth of knowledge only comes from this particular group of people may i may i offer an example mm-hmm. of yes. that from my own experience Absolutely. so i so i study media um, mm-hmm. and so part of my study is looking at history of media and um, I lived in I lived o- overseas in Europe for about a year, and here's how nerdy I am. So I, I visited Germany, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the places I wanted to go was a place called Mainz, Germany. Mm-hmm. Now Mainz, Germany is known for um, having the Gutenberg Museum, mm-hmm. right? And so Johannes Gutenberg is, right. is well known for being the first person to have movable type, right? right? And so that revolutionized the printing industry and stuff, mm-hmm. right? So. Johannes Gutenberg was um, a, a German, white European man right. um, who invented this way of, of reproducing print that was seen as revolutionary, mm-hmm. right? And certainly you don't want to um, discredit uh, or, right. or, uh, or downplay his achievements, but right. one of the things that people uh, don't necessarily talk about as much is that the idea of movable type is, you know, built upon woodblock prints, which had existed in, in China, right, in East Asia, <laughs> in you know, East several Asia. several yeah. hundred exactly. years before the movable type, right? Exactly. And so it's almost like from a historical perspective, going back to to mm-hmm. the idea of hegemony, that mm-hmm. um, what you remember tends to be the thing that is, for whatever reason, largely a Western contribution, contribution. to to society and even to the United right. States, when exactly. historically the United States has has um, you know been a, an immigrant nation by and large, and so exactly. contributions have come from all the, all over. Absolutely, and that's, you know, trying to dispel this notion that no one contributed but these, you know, Western society Europeans were the only ones that brought any scholarship or learning or knowledge. Um, it's something that I've really worked to you know, show that there were more than than that that is responsible for the ways that we have learned things for, you know, centuries, but the, that history has been not so much lost, because I don't think it's lost. I think it has been hidden, um, that it has been something that people want to minimize or marginalize, and so I've been that's one of the main things that I've been trying to do with my career to ensure that the collections that I've built, and it's not just in um, this whole notion of Western society, but even if you narrow it down, even into the African-American experience, that there is some idea that there is this one type of experience, and that is representative of all African Americans, trying to dispel that notion 
of narrowly defining groups. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to transition a bit um, from talking about your professional research interest mm -hmm. to, to you yourself as, as a resident of Bryan College Station. Now, okay. we've mentioned that you're an African-American, mm -hmm. but um, also uh, the, the way that I got connected to you was I reached out to um, the ICBCS, right. and so you are also a Muslim as well. Right. Yes. Okay, and so going, so so jumping off of that idea that you don't want to to flatten everybody's experience, especially even African Americans. Mm -hmm. I'm curious now. Um, did you uh, did you grow up as a Muslim? Did you convert at some point in your life? Yes. Uh, so um, yes, I I converted. I think when I was around twenty, uh, twenty maybe 21. It's been a while. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, and I grew up in a, a Christian family. I, I would say my dad less religious than my mom, and my mom got more religious as she got older. But uh, of course, you know, a lot of African-American families did have a Christian uh, background. But one of the things that I'm always pushing against is this notion that African Americans were always Christian when there were uh, some of the first Africans who came to this country were Muslim. And in, in fact, there's a Muslim country that was the first, I think it was Morocco, was the first to recognize the U.S. as a, a sovereign nation. And uh, so Muslims have always been a part of American society. And the, some of the first Africans, as I said, were Muslims who came here. Um, some of the first enslaved Africans were Muslims who came here, too. And some of the most well-known Africans who were enslaved that we know about were Muslims. Uh, and so there, there's, I always have to talk to people, not just people who are African-Americans, but I also talk, as I, I work with, uh, when, I, when I meet with uh, people from religious archives, I say, okay, if you're talking about, if you have materials on enslaved Africans, do you talk about the fact that there were Muslims who were here who were enslaved? So there's a way of including people in ways that are, are significant and can broaden our understanding. I, I've, I've been Muslim a long time, so and I converted in, in um, Detroit. Michigan has the distinction of being, and I always have to correct people, it's the largest Arab population outside of the Middle East, but they are not Muslim. The majority of them are not. It's probably now about 50-50, but when I was growing up, the majority of the Muslims who were in Michigan or in, in, in the Dearborn area were Christians. And, and as a matter of fact, even to this day, the majority of Arabs in the U.S. are Christian. They're they are not Muslims. I mean, that number is growing, I think, in terms of the Muslim Arab population. Interesting. So there was a large uh, Muslim population, African-American Muslim population. I mean, we know about the Nation of Islam, and the Nation of Islam was very prominent in Michigan and in Chicago because they're so close. Mm -hmm. But um, there was a large Sunni Muslim uh, community there, and um, that was the community that I 
became a part of mm-hmm. in, in, in the Detroit area. So not all, and so this is this another mis, misunderstanding of Islam for African Americans that most people think that they all came through the Nation of Islam. Uh, I never was part of the Nation of Islam. I am the majority of the people that I was uh, in a community with were not. Well, I would even say that that when we think about the civil rights movement and, and, and mm-hmm. black nationalism, yes. that, that, that even the Nation of Islam is a little bit, it's they're, they're uh, erased as well um, because yes. of the, because t- people tend to remember Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who yes. um, actually people probably also forget that he was he was a religious man as yes. well, right? I mean, he exactly. was a Christian, um, exactly. but he is known more as a civil rights activist. And right. so, uh, so while you do say we all know about the Nation of Islam, we kind of do. Uh, mm-hmm. We kind of don't too. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, but yeah. Well, the nation, uh, the Nation of Islam, really started in the early 1900s, and. Um, Interesting enough, there was someone that came from India who um, came to the African-American community and basically told them, you are part of that lost, found nation of Muslims. That's how they got called, the Nation of Islam. And he worked with, uh, at the time, Elijah Muhammad, and that's how the Nation of Islam was Founded. And so it was uh, started out to give black people a sense of their own humanity at a time when they were being lynched, when they were being, you know, um, thrown in, in jail for no reasons other than uh, convict labor. They were, you know, treat, oppressed in many ways. So it was a way of saying, you are these, you know, amazing people who have this uh, wonderful history. You need to reclaim that history. You are part of that lost, lost foundation of Islam and that you are worthy, you know. And so it was an opportunity for African Americans who were, you know, at the bottom of society to see themselves as being worthy and the best of creation. Do you think that that um, had to, that the strong pull to reclaim their heritage and history mm-hmm. uh, is because the largely the people who, these white people who were oppressing African Americans in so many different ways for centuries were, by and large, even at that time, Christians? Yes, I, I think that was a part of it. Um, and so... In many ways, Christianity was being tied to that oppressive system that was in place. And this was a way of showing them that there is this faith tradition that doesn't consider you to be the lesser, that sees you as being the kings and queens um, of society, and that you are strong, you're independent, and you can um, take care of your own self. So it was a message of revolution and empowerment that was so needed at, at that time. And I think that they were attaching it to Islam because Islam has always 
has has not had that history of oppressing people based on race, uh, oppressing people based on how they um, move about in society. And so that appealed to a large number of, of individuals. I think Elijah Muhammad moved it into a different type of, of, of Islam where it became more of self-empowerment, which I think was the really great aspect of um, the nation of Islam, that self-awareness, that self-improvement, self-empowerment, but also that these people who were whites and Christians were the reason why you have been treated this way. And so it it was, he tied all of that evil stuff to these groups. And so you had this whole notion that whites were devils. And, and so that, that all became a part of it. I'm interested to hear um, a little bit about uh, connecting your research to, to, to you as a person and your, yes. your experience here in Bryan College Station. Yeah. I mentioned this in a previous podcast episode um, about how at Texas A&M University, uh, how African-Americans are underrepresented on campus. Yeah. So um, the research that you do is, is, is very uh, centered around um, uh, revealing and reclaiming the important contributions of Africans right. and African-Americans right. in history. Do you see any connection between the work that you do in archiving work, work mm-hmm. and library work with, with, your, with the fact that you are a black Muslim woman living in Bryan College Station? Absolutely. The, for me, I know it's important. I've done research in, in this area of diversity and inclusion. I know how important it is for students who are coming from small towns or who are coming from large cities like Houston to see someone that looks like them. And even though I may look a little different um, because I wear the kimar, I still am an African-American. And I think that is important that people see representations of themselves in order to feel that they belong. And so it's always been important for me to be out there. If there's an event that's going on or if their students need someone to come, I mean, I've done all kinds of things just to have students see that I'm a presence out there for diversity and that I'm here so you can be here too. And it's been challenging, yes, for me in many <laughs> ways. But I think the challenges have outweighed the successes that I have achieved with students here in terms of them reaching out to me for events, uh, for... Do, may I, do you mean that the successes outweigh the challenges? Because you said the challenges outweigh the successes. Oh, yeah. I meant to say. That's okay. You can, <laughs> Fraudian slip. No, you can. 
<laughs> listen, listen. We're all about you. You telling us what you're thinking, you know. And so I don't. I'm not gonna try and you know twist no, this no, into no. it. So you can start over. <laughs> okay. So yes, the the successes have outweighed uh, most of the challenges. There are still many challenges, as you said. The 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 population of students, African American students, is still very low. I've seen an uptick since I've been here, but it is not what I think it is, especially in terms of the population of the state of Texas. But I do think that there have been some uh, changes. I think having a strong program in Africana studies would be a way of generating more students, bringing in more students, making sure we have representation that is diverse, making sure that voices are included and the things that we we do is important, making sure we listen to students and faculty for that matter who are diverse and ensuring that we are you know, building, for me, it's building collections, building materials that people can see themselves and can use to learn more about that history. One of the areas that I think I've been most successful in here is building collections that are looking at the other groups that were engaged in civil rights activities. So those individuals who were black socialists, black communists, you know, um, radical groups, um, the Students for a Democratic Society, many of the um, groups that were fighting on college campuses for black studies programs. Uh, I talk about, I've talked to students about how for a number of those individuals who fought to have black studies on their campuses in the 60s and in the 70s, they faced death, they were fired, they were jailed, their work was minimized. There were a number who were blacklisted. Uh, so what students, and I hope, I, you know, one of the things I try to show students is that that what's going on now is a, it's not cyclical it is a straight line there are certain things that have been going on that were going on in the 50s and 60s that you start you're seeing now but they weren't just in the 50s 60s they were in the 70s they were in the 80s they were in the 90s mm -hmm. in the 2000s so it's important for students to understand that they can make a difference, that their voices need to be heard, that we need to have them out there in the fight. Because I do think it is not something uh, that is going to, you know, we're going to win. Like someone said, and I always think that was just an amazing thing, that democracy is a an ongoing project. It is not something that we say, oh, we got the democracy and we're done because there's always challenges to it. The same way with having inclusive voices. There's always going to be a challenge to that. And I don't think you're gonna ever win 
<laughs> you all you can do is keep pushing it because people keep saying, oh, there, there eventually is going to be a majority minority country. We're in a majority minority state. And what are the changes in terms of power that people of color have here? So it's not something that we need to rest on our laurels and say, oh, we've achieved this, so let's just sit back, because it is an ongoing process of successes, challenges, and some and oftentimes failure. You're so. saying that, that the, the changes aren't going to happen automatically just because the makeup of the, the country and the state even uh, is going to be changing, or, like you say, in the, in the case of the state. Yeah, the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. You know, so I don't think it's going to change if we have even a a majority, a minority on this campus. Because what we learn as we go through, you know, the years is that each group brings with it its own issues. And oftentimes we inculcate or it becomes a part of who we are, the oppression that we faced. And so you often find people who are who are part of your tribe, as they say, who are fine with making all kinds of awful statements about individuals or groups. And so it's 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 constant work that you have to do here and um, on, on the micro level at the university and at the macro level uh, in, in the state, in the wider uh, community and, and so forth. And it's not going to be done overnight. And so I, one of the things I'm constantly telling students, if you have these organizations, you're trying to do, make a difference, document them because what we've had to continually do here is continually reinvent the wheel and if you don't document this is where I come in with my archival hat Mm -hmm. if you don't document the work that you are doing or have done and the successes you have achieved then somebody can make it up and if somebody else is making up your story it is not going to necessarily be in the way that you see it. And so your work is not going to be carried on. This is a, a major thing, I think, in academia that we as, as, as researchers and scholars understand is that your work has to be proven. It has to be, um, somebody has to do those same types of surveys and studies in order to build on your work. It is important that we build on the work of each other, and unless we are saving that work, and that's the very thing, especially when you're dealing with marginalized communities. If you don't uh, encourage them to start documenting the work that they're doing, um, to develop their own community, I'm, I'm really big into developing your own community archives. You know, documenting the work you do is so important because it helps the next person who says, oh, that was interesting, let me, maybe I can move this a little forward. 
Um, and I, I give the example of Matthew Gaines, where they're working now to develop a, a statue on campus. Mm -hmm. And I would, since I've been here, I would tell the students, document, document, document the work. Every year I would have a group of students say, we want to get this Matthew Gaines statue made. Matthew and, Gaines is uh, uh, the first um, a representative who, was a, who used was to be a one, slave. He was a born slave. Yes. Uh, and he, first representative of Texas, is that right? No, first... he was one of the representatives, uh, uh, um, state representatives of, of Texas. First, one of the African Americans. There were, there were, I think, maybe two or three. Mm -hmm. But he was a part of the legislature that um, is was responsible for Texas A and M being mm -hmm. built mm. Uh, as a state that was supposed to be for all. But they decided in um, the 1880s that, no, <laughs> it would not be for all. It would only be for uh, white males. I didn't know that that was initially the intention. Oh, yes. It was. It was it's a um, land-grant institution that was set up for all. But uh, when um, I believe an African-American tried to enroll, they decided, nope, this is going to be an all-white institution. We will build Prairie View. We're starting on Prairie View. You know, that's where you can go. And so you, you have this history that students can learn about now that we can help people and provide them the documentation to show, yes, this these students found this information, and here you can build on that. And I think for us in all aspects of our history, we really don't do a, a good enough job of documenting the work that we do. And that's anybody because it's important. We talk about data in other disciplines. Data... And, and this work is the actual meetings, the actual discussions, what type of research that you find. That's all data, too, and it's important to the story, the final product that you are, are developing. And I, I'm just really happy to finally see them pushing to get this that's fascinating. Oh, I didn't know that that was uh, uh, that they were working on that yeah. specifically. I think I may, I, I've heard of Matthew Gaines um, very yeah. recently as, yes. as part of Texas A&M history. Right, right. So, unfortunately, we're out well, of time sorry. because you do need to go uh, to another yeah. meeting. But we can but, talk but, again. <laughs> I mean, you know me. I mean, I, as you notice, I love to talk that's, about these things, especially archives. That's great. Uh, Rebecca Hankins, uh, thank you so much for thank taking you. the time to chat. Uh, it was uh, really fascinating, the work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you thank very you. much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having me. DCS Race Talk is produced, edited, and marketed by me. Our graphic designer is Anthony Ramirez. Additional marketing and graphic design help by Dominique Benjamin. Thanks for listening. Thank you.